I invite you to turn with me. We're going to be in 1 Kings, right near the end of the book, 1 Kings 21, and we'll be looking at verse 29. So 1 Kings 21, 29. While you turn there, I'll pray for us. Lord, we do bless your name in the midst of the congregation, and that's what we ask now. We ask that your name would be blessed, that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word as we meditate and consider these things from the book of Kings, that you would be honored, that our hearts would be turned, and that our ministry would be more effective for having known you better. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 1 Kings 21, 29, the, in fact, the, the entire back quarter of the book of 1 Kings deals with the reign of Ahab, or covers the reign of Ahab, the nemesis of Elijah. Anyone named Ahab here? Probably not. You don't meet a lot of Ahabs, also not a lot of Jezebels. It's too soon, too soon for Ahab and Jezebel. Maybe another 3,000 years, and then, then they'll be back. You don't meet a lot of Ahab and Jezebel. You don't go to your, in your quiet time to the Bible and think, man, I need to, some encouragement from the life of Ahab, that pillar of the faith. And while we might not go to our Bible uh, looking towards the example of faith that is Ahab, there is some encouragement in his life. There's plenty of warning, and there, there's warning in our text tonight, but there is some encouragement, some encouragement that will help us as a church not be rendered ineffective by a sort of faithless timidity before the Lord. And so we're going to pop back into the story right near the end, we'll start a little bit earlier, right near the end of Ahab's life, and shortly before Ahab dies, God pronounces judgment against him. And he says through the prophet Elijah, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. No proper burial for Ahab's posterity. Cursed. And how does Ahab respond to this? When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And then in response to Ahab's response to this, this show of repentance, we hear the following message from the Lord, God, judge of all the earth. In our verse, 1 Kings 21, 29, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, there are a few things going on in this text that could cause some misunderstanding, so it's important that we establish four pieces of context. These four facts will help us, guide us in exactly how to understand and apply what we read in our verse. So the first thing, you have to understand the kind of king 
that Ahab was. In fact, immediately before our verse, we are told in a parenthetical comment following God's pronouncement of judgment, there was none, none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. You'll remember in the book of Kings uh, that every king of Judah and Israel is introduced with a formula that kind of summarizes the reign. It tells you how long they reigned for, and it gives you an assessment of what type of king they were. Here's how Ahab's assessment went when he was introduced. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What kind of king was Ahab? He was the worst. Ahab was literally the worst king. The kings before Ahab had polluted and corrupted the worship of the one true God. That's what's referencing the sins of Jeroboam. He had corrupted the worship, but he was still leading people to worship Yahweh. He corrupted it. He had disobeyed the law, but he was still leading people to worship Yahweh. And then Ahab comes along and then leads the people into outright paganism, following after false gods, evil spirits. Ahab literally led the people into very dark spiritual stuff. And in fact, right before this episode, it was when Ahab killed Naboth, or was complicit in the murder of Naboth. Naboth, you remember, he had a field, you know, garden. Ahab was jealous of the garden. He wanted to buy it. Naboth said no. And Ahab is depressed about this, and he's upset. And his wife says, what are you, you're the king, dude. Well, let's take care of this. And so she goes and has Naboth killed so that Ahab could get this garden that he wanted. Ahab was literally the worst king. You also have to understand what kind of king Ahab's son was. What kind of king Ahab's son was. Because one possible misunderstanding that could come from our verse that we just want to cut off right here is that it can sound like God is punishing the son for the, the sins of the father, which God says he doesn't do in Ezekiel. I mean, how is it fair for disaster to come upon Ahab's son, Ahaziah, for Ahab's sin? Well, that's, that's not what's happening. Right? The disaster happens in Ahab's son's day because Ahab's son was the same type of king that Ahab was, only without any show of repentance whatsoever. We forget sometimes because of the way the Bible tells the story, focuses on Ahab, tells his whole story, then tells Ahaziah's story. But Ahaziah was alive during this time. He was alive, he was an adult, to hear this pronouncement of judgment. No repentance from Ahaziah, but we know what type of king he was. This is how his assessment goes in the book of Kings. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. <clears throat> 
So God was just in bringing down judgment on Ahab's son. Third bit of context that we need. We have to understand the kind of end that Ahab suffered. Ahab still had an ignoble end. In fact, he still experienced the personal curse that Elijah had prophesied, that the dogs would lick up his blood. Near the end of his life, we hear from another prophet, Micaiah. He had had, this prophet Micaiah, he had had a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he saw God conferring with a council of servant spirits. And he said, The Lord was sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven was standing before, beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. God specifically sends a spirit to entice Ahab and lead him to his death. And that happens. Ahab is drawn to the battle, and the text rather coyly says, A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. In other words, by all account, it just seemed quite random. No epic battle between Ahab and like, you know, the other army's champion. No showdown between kings or generals. He just gets hit by an arrow at random by someone who actually wasn't even aiming for him because he was in disguise and he wasn't in his royal chariot at the time. But of course, the entire point is that it wasn't random at all. God had brought his judgment down against Ahab. The text concludes Ahab's end by noting, So the king died. He was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. So Ahab did not escape personal judgment. He did avoid seeing the total disaster the Lord had prophesied against his house. But what does that mean for his repentance, or how we're supposed to understand what's happening in our verse? Well, that leads to the fourth bit of context we need, which is a bit of theological context this time. We have to understand the kind of thing that Israel's kingship was. Israel's kingship was a cosmic object lesson. In theological lingo, we say it was a type. The entire office was a type. Right? Israel's king wasn't any old monarch. Israel's king was the appointed representative of a theocratic state. The Old Testament nation of Israel in the Promised Land was a God-governed nation in a way that no other nation ever has been. It was the only theocratic state that God ever established, that God directly wrote the laws for, and that was designed to exist particularly as a picture to the entire watching world. And this means that Israel's king had a unique representative role. He was supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God. He was supposed to have a unique priestly function. And because of that public, cosmic witness that the whole arrangement was serving, God dealt with his kings in ways that were directly meant to be object lessons to his people and to all peoples throughout history who have these accounts preserved for us in Scripture. And so because of the unique position that Ahab occupied, God dealt with Ahab in ways that were meant to have a public witness, an enduring public witness that were to be an example, that were to teach us about how God wants to relate to his people, how he wants to relate to us. And this leads us to the main idea that we're supposed to take away from this account in verse 29. God responds to repentance. God responds to repentance. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. 
but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. You see, look how God talks. He says, have you seen? I want you to see this. I want you to see what Ahab's doing so you can see how I respond. I want you to get what's happening here. I want you to get what I'm responding to. Have you seen how he's humbled himself? And because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. God delights in repentance so much that a public repentance of the king of Israel, even a pseudo-repentance that didn't ultimately end in true personal repentance, even a public repentance from the worst king of Israel had to be met with some form of public approval in order to get across this message. This is what I want you to do. If you repent of your sins, no matter how grievous, no matter how destructive, I will relent. I will show mercy. God delights to respond to repentance. He delights to show mercy. So, in light of this cosmic object lesson, here are three takeaways. Number one, don't be satisfied. Here's the warning part. Don't be satisfied with a token repentance. In many ways, Ahab's repentance was just for show. I mean, literally, it was to show us something about God. But Ahab himself didn't actually learn the lesson personally. What a tragedy. What a cosmic irony. The very encouragement that this episode was an object lesson for, Ahab didn't personally take hold of or benefit from eternally. Don't let that be you. Don't be satisfied with outward public repentance that does not actually have any bearing on how you think and feel before God and how, and how God thinks and feels about you. Jesus said, repent and believe. And he didn't mean tear your clothes in a public display or walk around dejectedly. He meant having the real heart that causes one to do those types of things when they are confronted with the reality of their own moral corruption. Humble yourself before God. Number two, follow the example of the prototypical good king, David. David also did great evil during his reign. But he genuinely repented over it. You, re you can read of his example in Samuel, but you can see into his heart of faith in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, you find not just a picture of what saving faith thinks and feels, but also a divinely given means to help you share those thoughts and feelings. The Psalms are inspired songs to help shape your hearts and wills. Repent, as we are encouraged to do by Ahab, but repent like David repented. And what a gift we have in Scripture. I mean, God has given us things to sing when we sin. And read Psalm 51. Listen to Psalm 51 set to music. Let the words of Scripture shape your hearts, your thoughts, your attitudes, and feelings about your sin and your place before God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing heart. 
And you do this, you sing these things, you experience these things, and you rest it all, number three, you rest it all on the antitypical good king, on the real good king. We have a foundation that allows us to do this. Jesus was a king without need of repentance, who never partook of paganism, idolatry, disrespect, hatred, lust, greed, lies, or covetousness. And his death is viewed in the divine courtroom as all-sufficient, totally worthy, complete, a complete payment for all sins, even the worst of sins. Sometimes we are so timid before God in a faithless way, like, like an orphan who's only ever known disapproval, anger, stinginess from their caretakers, whose belly was perpetually growling, whose eyes were dried out, no more tears left to cry. And then they're adopted by a loving couple who kill the fattened calf. They lay out a, a Christmas feast. Ham, turkey, stuffing, cakes, cookies shaped like trees, dots of frosting for ornaments, pile of gift wrap presents clearly labeled, stockings stuffed full of treats, maybe the glass-colored sodas with the marble like the Japanese make. All these things, all labeled, set out just for their new child. That child is too timid to take a bite, too afraid that it couldn't possibly be real, too sure that those presents couldn't really be for them. That food couldn't really be for their pleasure. That no one could really be that kind. Jesus is that kind. God is that good. He paid for it. He paid for it all. Bought and paid for it. It's for you. Jesus paid for it all. All the benefits of salvation, yours, purchased at the cross for you to boldly lay hold of. And one of those benefits that Jesus fully paid for is the ability for you to repent and be accepted. So be confident in Christ. God wants you to know. He said, do you see? Do you see how Ahab humbled himself? God wants you to know that he wants you to repent and that he will respond with mercy. It is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Expect God to accept your repentance. Expect him to respond with forgiveness and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for what you have done for us and what you invite us into. And so we do ask that the shame of sin, the fear of judgment, uh, the disbelief that your salvation could be real would never prevent us from coming to you, would never prevent effective gospel ministry here in this church and in Elgin. Grant us to come to you repenting confidently, expecting you to respond the way you respond to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.